Well, we have been traveling through this wonderful chapter on the resurrection. Paul dealing with the issue in the Corinthian church about resurrection. There were some among them, he said, how is it there are some among you that say there's no resurrection? So he goes through answering questions and discussing controversy about resurrection and how the resurrection will look. What kind of body will the resurrection take place with? What would our bodies be like? And we talked about example of a seed being planted or sown in the ground. You picture a tulip bulb. And if I show you a tulip bulb and I show you a picture of a tulip and I say, believe it or not, that tulip is inside of that bulb. You'd go, no way. If you were just from another planet, you'd never seen tulips before, never planted a garden. And I showed you these two things and I said, they're connected. And this one comes out of that one. This ugly brown looking thing gives rise to this beautiful thing. You'd say, no way. There's no way I can accept that. And then, of course, I'd say, well, go ahead and plant it and we'll see what happens in the spring. And of course, up would come a tulip. And you say, that is remarkable. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see like in a foggy mirror. We don't see things clearly, but then we'll know even as we're known. So there's something inside of that tulip bulb. There is something glorious, but it's only released by death. So you're going to see me in heaven. You can go, Steve, is that you? Yeah. Yeah. Looking kind of tulipy, you know? Don't call me a tulip in heaven, okay? But you see these fields of flowers and we're all going to look different. Each of us has a different kind of glory. That's the cool thing about resurrection. So man, this has given me a fresh excitement for the things of heaven, a fresh appreciation because we spend a lot of time on our seed working on this body. And what Paul is telling us and telling them that this body is never meant for eternity. It's corruptible. And we're well aware of that fact. And interestingly, I showed you the picture of the spacesuit, the scuba suit. Those suits actually hide what's really inside. So my earth suit really hides the real me that will actually be revealed, the me I've always wanted to be, the me God intended me to be, the me some of you get a, occasionally we get a glimmer of here on planet earth, but all this seed broken apart by death and the real Steve blossoms in heaven. And I think that's going to be true. I can't wait. We're not going to not know each other. We're going to finally know each other. All the junk that's in the way of relationship, it's all gone. So verse 50, Paul says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood meaning these mortal bodies, the earth suit, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So something that is decaying, something that is dying, can't inherit something eternal, or you get like some crazy zombie movie. This body is meant for the grave. That's where it's going. And it has to go there. Because the kingdom of God is eternal. All the kingdoms of the earth have come and gone and come and gone. And earthly kings rule over earthly kingdoms. What did Jesus say? He said, my kingdom is not of this earth. His kingdom is eternal. And to be part of his eternal kingdom, I have to live for, say it, church, eternity. And I need a body that is suited to that. You ever get frustrated? You know, there's all these things we hope for and we get frustrated. And I think there's a part of you that's meant to be frustrated. There's a part of us that's meant to look at a life on earth that we're dwelling in these corruptible bodies and, and we're meant to be frustrated 
by this world because God wets our whistle. He tests our palate for things of the future. We were never meant to live for this world. So this flesh and blood cannot inherit. What does a corruptible body going to do with eternity? Nothing. I can't utilize it. And nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So people have been confused for centuries, for millennia about death. You see what people are buried with. It tells you a lot about that culture. Have you seen articles about that? Or even in our own generation, Cro-Magnon people were buried in their fanciest clothes, mammoth skins or whatever they were. Fancy clothes with everyday items because the people thought they were going to need them in death. Even mammoth tusks they were buried with. Vikings, the women got the keys, by the way. In Viking burials, the women would be buried with the keys and men, many of them buried with a symbolic hammer of Thor. But see, there's this idea that they know there's got to be a connection. There's something more. And there's somehow a connection between this life and the next life. But they get confused about what kind of body. They think that the body that comes will need the same things that the body here needed. You know what the trend is today in burial? Cell phones, mobile devices. I mean, I'm telling you what, if my mobile device is there, it ain't heaven. They call them cell phones for a reason. I'm in prison to this stupid thing. Uh, funeral home director Frank Perman said that he described the funeral for a young man whose cell phone, though it was on silent, lit up with a flow of calls during the family visitation time. So God wants us to inherit the kingdom and he's going to parcel it out to us. We need a new body. So he says, behold, or look, take a look. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, the euphemism for die, but we shall all be changed, transformed, different. It's something that happens in the future. It's something that happens to us. It's not something we do. It's something that happens to us. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. Again, it's passive, something that happens to us. Incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Whatever Paul is describing, he's expecting it to have happened in his lifetime. It's one of the things about reading the Apostle Paul's writing. He expected Jesus to come back and usher in the kingdom during his lifetime. Fully expected that, fully awaited that. But he says, hey, church, Let me tell you a mystery. A mystery is a sacred secret, something that's been kept secret. It was unknown or not understood in times past, but now it's become clear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has brought this clear. And the question they would be asking as they figure out and think about this discussion they're having in their church is maybe we're living in the kingdom now. Maybe there is no future thing. Maybe it's all right now. And Paul is trying to explain to them that's not true. And that has affected their behavior. I mean, if you think this is all there is, there's no resurrection. That's what he said to them. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection. Paul had told them about a future kingdom. He's told us about a future coming of the kingdom. When Jesus returns, it's called the second coming of Christ. How many of you are familiar? We celebrate Christmas. Jesus is born. He lives. He is crucified. He's buried. He's resurrected. He ascends to heaven. And essential part of the gospel, it's often left out in church services. He is coming back again. He's alive and he's coming back again. So we are people waiting for their master to return. We are bride waiting for the groom to come for the wedding day to be consummated. So we live in this place waiting and how we live 
while we wait is really important. This is what a lot of Jesus's parables were about. Jesus talks outside of the gospel of John in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God way more than he talks about love. Check it out. He only uses love once or twice in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He talks about love God and love your neighbor. But outside of that, the predominant message of Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God. This is what he wants us all to know. He wants you to know. So what happens if Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom, there'll be people alive on earth. I mean, he could come back any day. And there'll be people alive when Jesus comes back. What about them, Pastor Paul? What happens to them? He says, well, we're not going to all die because Jesus will come back while people are alive. Will they have to die before they can be resurrected? Or will they just miss out on the kingdom? What's going to happen? Well, Paul says, we're not going to all sleep, but we're still all going to need to be transformed. So in other words, I can't go into the kingdom. I can't be part of the kingdom until I have a transformed body, a body suited to that. Well, how does that happen? Is there a process by which it takes some time for this to happen? He says it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That is so cool to me. The word moment is where we get our English word atom, A-T-O-M, an atom, the smallest, at their time, the smallest indivisible unit of matter is an atom. Now we know protons, neutrons, electrons, quarks, and all that kind of stuff. But the atom represents the smallest indivisible particle. It's not cuttable. It's not dividable. So Paul says that this moment is an indivisible period of time. In other words, you can't have a smaller period of time than an atom of time. So in other words, he's saying this is not going to take a long time for you to be transformed. It is going to be instant. And he gives another descriptor. He says in the twinkling of an eye, literally an instant or the blink of an eye. If you blink, you'll miss it. It's all of a sudden transformed. The snap of a finger. And at the last trumpet, now there's all kinds of discussion about the last trumpet. What is that? Is that in the book of Revelation? And I'm not going to get into that. That's not Paul's point here. I will read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul discusses this thing. It's called the rapture of the church. So when Jesus comes back, well, let me read it to you from 1 Thessalonians. Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4 says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died before the kingdom comes, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So they thought our friends, our relatives have died. The kingdom hasn't come yet. Have they missed it? And Paul says, no, no, no. They haven't missed it. He says, in fact, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, he expected himself, will by no means precede those who fall asleep. We're not going to be first in the kingdom. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, can't imagine what that sounds like, and with the trumpet of God. I mean, there's going to be a day, I compare it for myself to 9-11. Everything seems normal. You wake up, you have your Wheaties or whatever, your smoothie for breakfast, and you start your day, and then all of a sudden, history happens in the moment. And it's so fast. And all of a sudden, the world as we know it is forever changed. And if airplanes flying into large buildings can do that kind of thing, imagine what's going to happen 
when the whole world has to be confronted with Jesus Christ's return. And, oh, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Peter had to deal with that. Hey, God is slack concerning his promises. He's not coming back. You Christians, you've been talking about the second coming of Christ for decades and centuries, and we don't think he's coming back. Okay, just wait. You know why he's not come back yet? Because he's waiting for every human being who will be saved to be saved. So pastors have an interesting way of talking about that. We say, look, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, if you get saved today, maybe you're the last one. You're holding us all up. Knock it off. Humble yourself. Get saved so we can all get out of here. Amen? <laughs> For the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the word harpazo in Greek. Latin, it translates to raptus, which is where we get the word rapture. You tracking with me, church? It means to be snatched away with force. It's like you're walking with your child across the street and someone doesn't know that in Charlottesville, you got to stop for the crosswalks and the pedestrians and they're looking like they're going to keep going through the crosswalk and you grab your child by the hand and you snatch them away with force. And that's this rapture is going to be this snatching away. So am I going to be snatched away in my human body? Don't blink because you'll miss it. I'll be a tulip real fast. That's what happens to people that are alive. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured together with those that had been dead, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what's coming for us. So Paul is just emphasizing the need, whether you're alive or dead at the time of the rapture, for transformation. For the trumpet will sound. This seems to be the trumpet that sounds the end. This is the end of human history as we know it, the beginning of the kingdom, the beginning of the tribulation time, we would say, and then the ultimate millennial kingdom of Christ. The dead will be raised incorruptible. You go from a corruptible body to an incorruptible body, and we're all going to be transformed. So he says, for this corruptible must, emphasize that, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, undying, a thanatos. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. You know, as we watch movies and we read stories, there are two themes that seem to be very important to the human mind. One is longevity and two is immortality. The superhero movies we love to watch and the Marvel movie is just busting through theaters throughout our nation right now. And you watch these characters, these superheroes, and I think there's a part of us that loves that. Because for a moment, we're able to be free in our mind from realizing and being reminded of our own mortality. So in our minds, we go where we know we can't go. We dream about what would it be like to be able to be attacked that way and not have it hurt us. What would it be able to be like to go through those things and not be injured? And to have that kind of godlike, superhero-like immortality. We dream about it. And again, the dreams of your heart are there for a reason. They're put there by God. You're supposed to dream about those things because that's what we have to look forward to in Christ. So we live in the time, longevity, 
uncorruptible lives. We kind of avoid death at all costs. We don't talk about it. don't want to think about it. We nip, we tuck, we paint, we exercise. We do all these things because there's a part of us that is trying to avoid face-to-face understanding with our own mortality, our own corruptibility. That's where deodorant comes in. You know, we put on deodorant because we're dying. We smell like it. Go to a middle school retreat and you will smell death. (laughs) So longevity, immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens at the resurrection, whether it, when Christ comes, as Paul is saying, that's when these things are going to be fulfilled. And that's when the saying will be accurate, that death is swallowed up, literally gulped down entirely in victory. Man, what a day that's going to be. Because right now, let's be honest, as a pastor, I do way more funerals, officiate more funerals than I'd like to. They're heart-wrenching times. Everyone is unique and different. And I have a practice when I do a memorial graveside service. I'll often wait until everybody has gone and I'll stay and watch the casket be lowered into the ground. And it's sort of a closure thing. And you're just reminded that at that time, man, death seems like it won. It's like when Rocky is passed out on the mount, down for the count. You go, man, death, you seem to have won. And there's a sting to it, isn't there? The death has a sting. The grave seems to win. But it's interesting that just as death seems to be taking its victory lap, just when death is high-fiving and feeling victorious, then resurrection happens. And Paul says, oh, how you doing now, death? Watch what happens. I like this. He says, verse 55, oh, death, hey, where's your sting? Hey, Hades, the grave, where is your victory? So it's as if Paul, he's calling back up Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13. These are Old Testament verses that had a fulfillment when they were written. But now he says they're perfect. Their ultimate fulfillment is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection with him. And at that time, you're going to be able to, I'm going to be able to, we're going to be able to taunt death. Oh yeah, death, you thought you were so bad. How many of you were bullied in school? I grew up in the generation where bullying was kind of the thing. It was just normal. And you avoid it. It's a hassle. Death is personified like a stinging creature. Oh death, where is your sting? There's some pretty serious stinging creatures on planet earth. One of the worst ones is this jellyfish that lives in Australia And it's got all these barbs on it. And if it stings you, basically it contracts your heart and you die, you're dead within two minutes. And they can't revive you because your heart's already constricted. So there's this venom in these stinging animals. So it's like death is this stinging animal and it's got this venom, but the resurrection takes away the venom. What fear is there of a non-venomous snake? Okay, some of you may have fear of non-venomous snake. We have counseling for that. You know, there's a really interesting story that I think gives the illustration. There's a family going on vacation, and one of the daughters is highly allergic to bee stings. Anybody here allergic to bee stings? Some people are very, very allergic. Got to carry the EpiPen. It's very dangerous, life and death. So his daughter's allergic to bee stings, and they're driving, got the radio on, and the windows roll down, and a bee ends up getting thrust by the wind into the car, and this bee is buzzing around inside the car. And of course, the daughter starts to get really on edge. She starts to cry and scream because she knows she can't get to her EpiPen and this is scary. And the dad reaches over, he grabs the bee in his hand 
And he holds it there until he feels it sting. And then he lets it go. And he turns to his daughter and he shows her the stinger in his hand because the honeybees, the stinger tears out the abdomen. The venom sac is still there. So the longer the stinger stays in, the more venom is injected, the more painful the sting. But once that honeybee stings, once it dies, it can't sting again. So he shows her the stinger in the hand and he says to her, the honeybee can't hurt you. I've taken the sting for you. And that is the gospel. Jesus Christ has taken the sting out of death. Death has to give up all its prisoners. What a day that is going to be. I mean, I've sat with people, I've prayed for people with cancer, and you just pray, oh God, we'd love to see eternity break into time and see you do something miraculous healing right now. And sometimes it happens, oftentimes it doesn't. And I remember walking out of one house, just disappointed and like, man, Lord, I just thought for sure you were going to heal. And Jesus spoke to my heart and he said, the resurrection, she will be healed. There will be no tears, no pain, no sickness, all that we are hoping for, fulfilled. And we can taunt death. You're not so bad. You ever thought about that? Go to a cemetery, right? All these bodies that it looks like the grave is one, they're all coming out. Just wait, they're coming out. And then we'll point a finger at death and say, you lose. Matter of fact, we used you. We needed death to release us. And we are now immune from death. Verse 56, Paul says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he paints this picture. It's as if, A death is this stinging creature and the sin is the venom and the delivery system is the law or the stinger. Paul says, we're going to take away the venom and take away the stinger itself, the delivery system. Now remember back to the garden. It was Adam and Eve in the garden. And the first commandment was, hey, Adam and Eve, go enjoy. All this is for you. The first commandment was positive. The second one was, but there's one tree... You need to leave it alone because it'll kill you. And they said, now, uh, which tree was that again that'll kill us? I'm just curious, you know. What is it about us as human beings that has an affinity for the forbidden? We think, oh, the answer to all our problems in America is more rules. The answer to all our problems in our home is more rules. All our problem in the church is more rules. And what Paul says is the law actually works against us. It doesn't help us. It works against us. Number one, it just shows you how very sinful you are because you want the thing you can't have. And it appeals to that part of you, that sinful part of you that wants that, that appeals to desire for the forbidden, covetousness. Once you tell a kid you can't have that, they go, well, that's exactly what I want. Tell a person that can't have that, oh, that's what I want. So the law reveals our sinfulness and it tempts us everything we've done, every sin we've committed, every law we've broken, every way we've been unloving, every way we've been unforgiving, all of that, all the wrong we've done, the penalty, the sting, the venom of death for that was all taken by Jesus. God is, listen church, God is satisfied. He's satisfied. 